Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. And welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Alice Rowley. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com Welcome to our People in the News episode where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today we are talking with Nashville Mayor Candidate Alice Rowley. Nashville native... Baptist Hospital and the Vanderbilt NICU. She's a graduate, like her late grandfather of Hume Fogg High School, right there near Broadway. Early in her career, well-intentioned public policy to reduce class sizes in Los Angeles public schools. They created a teacher shortage. She answered the call to serve and became a teacher through the LAUSD District Intern Program, where she earned the highest instructional ratings. Alice is an alumna of Leadership Nashville, she has been active in her community, serving two terms on the board of directors for WPLN, National Public Radio, and on the founding regional board of Teach for America. After reading an article about the plan for developers to erect 27 buildings on Fort Negley Public Park, she rallied her fellow Nashvillians to fight back, proving that the citizen volunteers who care about quality of life still have a voice in shaping our city's future. After a decade of frequent moves in support of her husband's military service in 2011, Alice and Michael and their two boys made their home in the Edge Hill neighborhood of Nashville. She has served at both state and federal levels, notably as Assistant Commissioner of Strategy for the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development, where her portfolio included the Research Division, the state's international office, Launch TN, and the Tennessee Entertainment Commission. At the federal level, she served as special assistant and later campaign manager for U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander, the now retired chairman of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, and the only person popularly elected both governor and U.S. Senator for Tennessee. Hello, Mrs. Rowley. Thank you for coming on today. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much um, for having me and for all that you are doing to help educate um, voters uh, here. And then also to, um, I, I think, to share the good news about people who are stepping up um, to serve our communities. Oh, thank you for saying that. And it is thunder and lightning out there. So hopefully uh, somebody's not mad at me, but uh, we're doing the best we can. Um, and the power's on, and that's good. So thanks for coming on. Appreciate you taking the time from the campaign for us. Um, now, it's great because you're a unicorn born in Nashville. Uh, can't call you a carpetbagger like many others out there. What do you love about Tennessee the most? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, it it is home to me. It is also a state that has regularly and pretty consistently defied the odds that has built a better way to do things. 
Um, so this is the state that gave women everywhere the right to vote and passing and ratifying the 19th Amendment it happened right here in Nashville. And it happened um, we were the 36th state, which we know all the constitutionalists out there, that that's the number that sort of get, gets you over. Um, and, and so I think that we have a real spirit of independence, but also a sort of a spirit um, of, um, of, 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 of knowing where we came from and knowing where we, um, where we are going. So to me, uh, Tennessee is home, um, Nashville is home, and, um, and I know why so many people from California are moving here um, because, uh, because of the quality of life, because uh, of the care uh, that we have um for 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 family and um and 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 for freedom here yeah and eighty thousand people moved here last year which means we're doing something right and not that probably a majority of them ended up in nashville so they they could be under your purview one day yeah um, well that's a, that's a sort of an interesting uh issue that we can talk about a little bit but um the region has grown and that is a correct statement for the region, but Davidson County, Metro Davidson County that I'm running to serve as the mayor of, uh, we have unfortunately started to um, follow a, a kind of a concerning trend in that, um, in that, our, re in that our population is not growing. We're, we're pushing families out. Um, we're pushing a lot of our middle-class families out. And so net, um, we've stayed steady for the last um, six years at right at 700,000 people. Uh, the region, when you talk about the 80,000 people, that, that is the region's growth. And a lot of that growth is coming to our neighboring counties that are, are running their schools well, that are holding themselves accountable to live within their means as a city, um, and that are allowing their police to function and, and, and do their jobs and to prosecute um, and, and to recognize that I think that I do is that we've got to also preserve the rights of victims in our criminal justice system as much as we do the rights of criminals. And, and so mm -hmm. our county and our region is really growing spectacularly. Um, and we have hurt ourselves in Davidson County, I think because in the last uh, the last couple of years, we have taken our eye off the ball of some of those issues. And to your point, um, my husband was in the army for 20 years. We lived all over the world. Um, he had multiple uh, tours to Iraq and when we we're done with the army. We came right back here as fast as we could because I because I wanted my kids to be here to know their grandparents. Um, but I but I am running to serve Nashville in this moment because I think that we have to make sure that we do not follow the recipe book that has plagued other big cities. Um, and 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 I think that we kind of have a last chance here to stop it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we have quite a mix uh, in this particular Metro Council. Um, member Sharon Hurt and Freddie O'Connell, a pair of state senators, Jeff Yarbrough and Heidi Campbell, the city's elected property assessor, Vivian Wilhoit, I think is how you say it, and three newcomers to running for office, economic development, Maven, Matt Wiltshire, and business types, Jim Gingrich, and you. Um, are you the only Nashville native in that race? No, I think there's three Nashville natives. I, I am the only Republican in that group. Um, and I know it is a nonpartisan race, but I also believe um, that uh, when we um, don't have a sort of a center right position to help articulate a bridge between our very liberal city council and our very conservative state that we um, that, that we frankly hurt, uh, hurt our residents and, and, and hurt our city. So um, I would say that I am 
a unicorn. Um, there, there are a couple, there are a couple of Nashville natives, but I would say I am the unicorn in that group. Um, I have uh, received, and I'm proud to have received the endorsement of community leaders of America last week, which is a group of pragmatic mayors around the country, the mayor of Oklahoma City, David Holt, the mayor of Fort Worth, Maddie Parker, that are showing cities that better is possible, that we can get back to the basics of doing uh, the work of, you know, and I, I frequently say, look, being the mayor is not about holding pro-life rallies and pro-choice rallies. It's not about getting involved into a lot of important national issues, but that's not actually our job. Our job is to hold a pro-first graders reading rally it's to hold a pro filling the potholes rally. It's to hold a get our fiscal house in order rally. And, and I actually think that people, um, a, lot, a lot of Democrats and independents hear that message and they kind of go, okay, she's not going to be taking Nashville to compete with Portland and Austin and Chicago to become them. She's not going to be operating in this national market of cities. She's going to say, how do I do what I need to do well here in Tennessee for people who live here in Tennessee um, and not, you know, and not go and create what this current mayor and this current council did. They created a pretty uh, big problem by voting against the RNC convention to come here. Look, seven years ago, the NRA convention and Donald Trump came here to uh, our convention center. We have a very effective convention visitor bureau. They are incredibly capable of recruiting the NFL draft here, big conferences. And they had recruited the, you know, the National Republican Convention to come here. And it required our city to write a letter saying, come on. And instead, our mayor took a very political position, pushed it to the council, and the council uh, said, we don't want you to come. Well, I, I operate in the world of it is not my job as the mayor of Nashville to tell people what to stay on, say on the stage. It is my job to have the streets safe, to have the trash taken out, to have the potholes filled. And you say, if we believe in freedom, you say whatever you want to say on the stage. That's not my job. When the NRA came here, nobody said don't come. And I think that we expect a certain amount of maturity from our elected officials. And right now we see people that they think their job is to score points. They think their job is to make a speech and they miss that their job is like, I, because I have worked at both the state and federal level for both Governor Haslam and Senator Lamar Alexander, I'm, I'm really clear. Like this, these, my job as the mayor is not, is not to set, you know, national policy on a whole bunch of citizenship or other issue. My job is to, you know, keep the streets safe, right? And, and so yeah. when we start to confuse what our jobs are at different levels of government. Um, we, I, I think we start to hurt the people that, that live here. So, um, it sounds yeah, like so I'm a unicorn in, in being, in being a Republican. Um, yeah. and I, and which is and, an uphill battle in Nashville. I mean, we, we just described it. Are you getting the support from the Davidson County Republicans and Davidson County Republican party chair, uh, Lonnie Spivak that you need? Oh yeah, Lon well, you know, Lonnie uh, has done a great job as county party chair. He was newly elected in February at helping recruit candidates. And he's got a large group of, of candidates that have been um, recruited to run. And um, yeah, and so, so yeah, we have, um, 
you know, we have welcomed all different kinds of volunteers. Uh, we've got folks that are volunteering on the campaign because they are uh, believe that parents should have the ability to choose the best school for their child. We have people volunteering and helping on the campaign that are veterans, um, like my husband. We have people um, like Lonnie and other people that are, are parts of different Republican um, Republican clubs. And yeah, so we uh, we, yeah, and they're very, they're, they're great. We are at frequently like at the Bellevue picnic a couple weeks ago, um, his team was there and they had our materials out and, um, they didn't, they didn't have any of the other seven people's materials <laughs> out. So. That's good. Cause in a crowded field, you're going to need the support. So that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. you know, we do, you don't know this, but we do a lot of bashing of California on this show, unfortunately, yes. because we love my birth state and wish mm -hmm. it would improve in areas like forest management and taxes and crime, and especially the public schools. You mm -hmm. were there, LA mm -hmm. Unified is the largest, one of the largest in the country, if not the largest. What did you see that caused it to fail so badly? And do you see those problems in Nashville and do you know how to fix them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I want to I want to start with um, with mentioning um, that that we do have one of the greatest uh, folks that that were were part of two I guess two parts to go back to California. When I told my grandparents, who um, were the statewide chairs of Farmers for Reagan, out at their farm on River Road, and my dad lives there now. The listeners here they may know uh, they may know the public part of our farm there is called Green Door Gourmet, and you know it has um, vegetables and watermelons and all kinds of things out there. A lot of people know um, know our family's farm, but that was the farm, the statewide chairs of Reagan. And uh, my grandparents, um, when I told my grandfather I was going to go to Stanford University in, uh, in California, he's a cattle farmer, he and my grandmother were real worried I might come back a vegetarian. So I just want everybody to know um, if you are listening and you're here in Tennessee and you have your daughter, your granddaughter who is thinking about going out there, they can they can come back. Um, the Hoover Institute is one of the great uh, jewels in the state of California. And and I actually know that, you know, uh, Mike Kerb, who came here, he was the lieutenant governor for uh, Ronald Reagan, and he came here and opened Kerb Records um, and has been a tremendous asset here in Tennessee on Music Row. Um, so we welcome um, our new conservative California friends here. Come on, <laughs> like we need you, we need you to vote for us. Um, but in terms of the question of education, so uh, I did, I taught in uh, well-intentioned public policy, um, you know, said, let's make class sizes 20 to one. But no one actually thought about, do we have enough teachers to make that happen? And I think that's pretty typical in, in government. That was well-intentioned, right? A lot, I'm sure a lot of data was backing that. Um, what, I, what I found, I taught high school at Birmingham High School in Van Nuys. I taught ninth and 10th grade. I had about 120 kids in my class uh, every day. And I would say, um, I, I saw, I actually saw, especially in the two honors classes I saw, I saw a tremendous amount of rigor. I saw kids that wanted to be there. Um, and then, and then, frankly, I saw in some of my um, regular classes, I, I, I saw, you know, I saw, I saw some challenges, right, of kids that I didn't talk to their parents. I talked to their probation officer, um, kids that were living in group homes that had additional challenges. But I also saw the difference um, that I that I believe I made, and I believe that a lot of teachers make um, when you are operating from the belief that all children can learn. 
and I and 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 I and I know you can say Alice that's so Pollyanna and maybe I'm going to live and die being Ted Lasso but I actually believe that um that that great teachers in front of a classroom um but where things go south and where you saw the frustration is um when the dollars are not following the child to the school where they are going when they are locked up in a central office and maybe a third of the dollars are following there and people always kind of go like well how come you know a a, a school down the street is able to operate at sixteen thousand dollars a year and Metro government says they can't operate at $16,000 a year. A, a lot of it is, I think, decisions that believe that the site of the school where the education is happening should not be allowed to do their job and to teach, that things need to come from some sort of, you know, uh, other other place. But ultimately, I believe um, the challenges in, in Los Angeles and in our other large school systems are uh, really come down to do we are we uh, accountable to a result and so in my campaign I do talk quite a bit about first graders reading um but uh, but also here it is accountable to the taxpayers in in metro Nashville Davidson County we are spending about two hundred and ten thousand dollars per child to educate our kids k through 12 you know call it fifteen thousand dollars a year times 13 years we have an 80% failure rate. And, 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 we, and we step back and we say, what, why, if I listen to the news the last three years, our, our Metro School Board and our mayor have said we fully funded schools. So part of you says, well, if you're fully funding it, then why are we getting an 80% failure rate? Um, and, you, you know, and I, and I think some of it, it, it does come down to a accountability. And I think right now, so, so you might say, oh, Alice, this is doom and gloom. Where's the hope, right? So we right now, Metro, actually, this will bring it all back to Los Angeles. Um, we have a choice to believe that we can become Miami-Dade, which uh, Alberto Carvalho took that school system from an F-rated to an A-rated. And he did it by believing in parents and by embracing aspects of choice and not saying, hey, if you don't pick the school that you're assigned to, uh, you're out. But to start to say, if there's schools that parents want to send their kids to, claim them as public schools, fund them as public schools, support them as public schools, and then learn from them. So Alberto Carvalho is now in Los Angeles Unified. And I and I think what he's confronting there is, um, is a lot. <laughs> like, I'm not... Um, but... Uh, if, if anyone can, can do it twice, my money is on him. It took him 10 years in Miami, F-rated to A-rated. They spend about the same dollars per student in Miami-Dade as we do here in Davidson County. They have just as many different languages. They have just as high of a cost of living situation, but they embraced the choice of parents and said, hey, parents, if you believe that the best way for your child to be served within our school system is at a charter school or is at a magnet school, then instead of telling you we don't have enough space, we're going to close it, get out, we're going to create those spaces, we're going to em embrace that choice. And the other choice that we have in this election to make is do we want to go the direction of Detroit? Detroit operated their schools as if parents would forever be captive to schools, and they believed and operated as if they would always have 200,000 students forever and ever, but then families started to move. It's what we see here in Davidson County too. When you look under our migration numbers, families are moving out to go to Wilson County schools, to go to Sumner County schools. 
and and people who are net the net in migration are primarily millennials, zennials, the new younger without kids, right? College, college grads, um, college age, or, yeah. or 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 empty nesters like like yesterday, some guys that are a, a couple that uh, moved in down the street here. Um, you know, they they said, well, our kids graduated from Williamson County Schools, we're done, and so now we're going to move back into the city where we can be closer, less of a commute. Right. But the school question of schools not serving families is fundamentally uh, a, a challenge that will erode the, the homeownership rates in Davidson County, the, um, the, the, the rates of economic attainment, and, and we're pushing families out. So w- what did I learn in Los Angeles Unified? Um, uh, I think I learned a great deal of empathy. I learned uh, that I, re- I still remember somebody asked me how I rate the city because I was a educator and um, and I and I would say to remain accountable and to be a little bit c- courageous, uh, which I think are lessons that we frequently um, want to believe our elected officials have, but that we um, uh, that 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 we don't value enough. There was a little girl named uh, Jennifer who came to me at the end of both semesters. Uh, that I was her teacher and she was on the drill team and she would bat her eyes and say to me, miss, all my other teachers are giving me a D now. Can't you just take my F and make it into a D so I can stay on the drill team. And I said, Jennifer, I can't do that because I gave you every opportunity to earn a D and you earned an F. And I was lucky because Dr. Doris Lassiter, who is one of my great supporters on this campaign um, and uh, was with LA Unified for a long time. She was the principal at the school. I was very fortunate because she had my back and she said, you know what, I can see you gave her these other opportunities, but this idea that we just pass kids along and that we tell adults to look the other way at every turn, that, I mean, and I know I ruined Jennifer's summer and she didn't get to go to the drill team and she had to come to summer school, but I also think that in the long run here 20 years later after i was her teacher i think if she was listening to this she would say you know what you got my attention and i and every other teacher i batted my eyes and i got through and um so yeah so i guess i'm going to try to hold people accountable and when they come to me and say but i want a d and i'm going to have to say what you got but you earned an f (laughs) (laughs) especially in spending in city hall but when when one of the things i noticed in the 70s was you know we were started the generation that was studying towards the test whether it be Mm -hmm. the standard achievement test the act test or you name it here in tennessee it seemed like it was a little bit of a shotgun wedding because a huge majority of the third graders had to retake the tcap Mm-hmm. Um, most school systems still saw less than 25% of those students earn a proficient score. Mm-hmm. Is that a failed exam? Have you seen the exam? Do you think it's sort of unfair, let's just say, to ask these certain graders who hadn't been prepared for it to actually pass it in order to get to fourth grade? I, I haven't seen the yeah. questions. I'm wondering if you think the test itself is a bad test. Well, um, I, so I believe that it is an incredibly blunt instrument um, to say, you know, third grade retention laws are incredibly blunt instruments, but at the same time, I think in government and in um, life, but in particularly in government, we do not pay attention until we are made to. So you can actually look at the last 10 years and our TCAP passage rates this year, even two and a half years after this law went into effect, have not really changed. 
right? They're, they're, they're pretty similar. So you'd say like, well, how come you set a standard or passed a law? They actually were pretty clear eyed about the rate of failure in, involved. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and so like, is a single test the right uh, metric? Probably not, but I would also say my, um, I, th I think about this frequently in sort of failure of government. My, my dad was born in 1946, leading edge of the baby boom. Um, when he was five years old and went to uh, grammar school here in Nashville, they weren't ready. They had outhouses that had to be put out. They had portable classrooms. They had five full years to get ready. Um, and it took the force of a class that was six times the year before his class for everybody to go, oh yeah, we knew it was coming. We saw it was coming and we still let it happen. So two, so two things on the, on, on, um, on, on this law, I would say, uh, we, I think the knee jerk reaction is, oh my God, we, we, we finished how we finished right now. Let's go change the law. But actually, I think two other things are happening at the same time to say, don't give up on the law yet. So one is that we also put in and are retraining our teachers on what's called the science of reading or really phonics instruction. Uh, there's great podcasts if people haven't seen it called Sold a Story about how um, in the same period of time that you mentioned sort of um, changes in educational philosophy, where we convinced ourselves and we convinced every college of education and every teacher that uh, phonics was not a, a primary building block for learning how to read. So I would say, uh, should we move the line of third of, of third grade retention? No. Um, is it going to cost us, you know, nine to fifteen thousand dollars more a kid for the kids that are going to be retained? Yes. But here's the longer societal cost of passing someone through or not confronting where we are and who who needs help or who needs remediation is that Tennessee prisons uh, give new inmates a literacy test. And right now, according to the chair of the House Education Committee, Scott Sapicki out of Murray County, our first grade, uh, excuse me, our male prisoners are coming in reading at a first grade level. Our female prisoners are coming in reading at a third grade level. So are we remediating second, third grade but are we doing it to produce a person who is able to compete for maximum wage jobs coming here? And I would say, uh, is it a blunt instrument? Is this particular third grade class probably hurt the most? Yes. But I would also say my father's class and, you know, all the babies born in 1946, they were also hurt the most going all the way through. And there's sometimes moments where it's like, we're not getting your attention. We told you this was a problem. Um, and, and, and maybe that level of accountability um, it is, um, is necessary. Um, I do think when I see there are a couple schools for listeners, uh, to look at here, um, KIPP, uh, the KIPP network here educates about 9% of our city's public school uh, students. Um, so when people kind of say, oh, they're cherry picking, I'm like, well, 9%, that's a pretty statistically significant group. They three years ago in conjunction with this law brought in a new approach to reading and today, um, interview go interview Catherine Baker, who runs their literacy. Their K through two students are testing at 80 and 85 percent, which they translate to TCAP passage rates of about eight points lower. So there is a difference between some of these regular tests and then where they're going to finish. To your point about you know is that exactly 
but it's not, it's not too much off. So, so we can look at that and say, they're more than doubling the passage rate of the rest of the population here. So that tells me it is possible. It's possible to do it at a cost per student that we're funding it at. And it's possible to do it with the same kids and like look across 80% of their kids are free and reduced lunch, socioeconomic groups, English language. They have 28% of their students are English as a second language. The entire district is 32%. So not, we're not cherry picking. They're not big differences in population. Um, so I, so I, I guess I would just say, you know, with Ted Lasso, I'm going to believe, and I've seen the results and I've seen the proof, uh, and we, and we have to hold ourselves accountable. So is it a blunt instrument? Yes. But sometimes do we need, uh, a blunt instrument to confront us, to build, um, and, and prepare? I, I think government needs it. Okay. So let's switch gears just a little bit, not too far away. Cause you mentioned mm -hmm. it, uh, the, the, the crime situation prisons, mm -hmm. uh, it is up in Nashville. Broadway mm -hmm. is the bachelorette capital of the world, and, mm -hmm. and those female tourists who want to have safe, uh, be safe and, and have a good time, um, plus we need the tax revenue. Once the, you know, the Titan Stadium is redone, we'll need more visitors to come and feel safe again, mm -hmm. and, and the expenses and Bridgestone Arena, everything is right down in town in the hub. What are you considering for a downtown safety improvement plan? And I'd like to ask you, I heard you on a show, and you talked about what was the phrase that you used? Uh, give me a uh, half a second. A victim's rights-based approach to solving mm -hmm. crime. What does that mean? And, uh, you know, the other thing is street racer initiative. Street mm -hmm. racing is a thing here and three teens died recently. Do you think the police will be able to end that trend? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so first, uh, our downtown is, if we look at about half of a percent of the county's land mass, contributes about a quarter of all of our tax revenue. So it is pretty important that we get crime and safety there right. So a couple of things are happening right now. Uh, first, the downtown did uh, and has levied additional fees on bar patrons. So bar patrons in Broadway pay 22% higher sales tax. So they're paying more uh, property owners in that in that area pay 4% more. And they have created through a state law that was passed this year. What I and I didn't know if you were going <laughs> to use this term. I have sometimes called it a mercenary police force. It is. There is an additional police force now uh, that is operating um, in, in the downtown area. I think the big challenge that we see, though, from a crime and public safety perspective is that we, and, and it also gets down to recruiting officers, is that we right now have a district attorney that does not enforce many of our laws. It does not, does not enforce many of our laws around sentencing provisions for things like stolen guns. We have a big problem of stolen guns here, right? Yep. But what happens is that crime is reported, the gun is found, and then we're not actually sending the person to jail for 180 days as the law says we shall because we're trading that for something else or we're taking the position of outcomes are worse when we incarcerate someone than than we don't but i i would actually say two things are starting to happen and it gets back to accountability uh one pe people you, you can see like massive police forces, you know, downtown presence to some of the big events that you've, that you've mentioned. But there's a sense, um, look, our, our last police chief was summarily dismissed for 
at the time enforcing a mask ordinance that said everybody has to wear a mask no matter what they have to wear a mask all the time and the police had to end up being this like mask police which they didn't they didn't sign up for that <laughs> like i mean you know right um people uh you, you know um flight attendants were turning into mask police like everybody was just like oh my god like uh, this is not what i signed up for but our past police chief uh for arresting an individual for breaking that ordinance uh an officer under his watch for breaking that ordinance because the person was experiencing homelessness apparently you weren't supposed to enforce the laws then they're supposed to enforce the laws on everybody else but not that person and so you know that was listed as one of the reasons he, he was asked to leave so i think for our police generally speaking there's a, a, a fair amount of frustration and it is contributing to what i say we need to do which is reset from a criminal justice system to a victim's justice system because we are so concerned with the rights of the criminal that we have missed accounting for the rights of the victim and victims want most to make sure what happened to them doesn't happen to someone else so that means actually saying that if a person committed assault, if a person stole a gun, if a person had, um, you know, some other crime. And if we let that person right back out, that victim is saying, oh, my God, what my what happened to me is about to happen to someone else. And so when I talk about resetting from a criminal justice system to a victim justice system, it is restoring, I think, some of the balance that I think regular people see, right? Look at what's happening in a lot of these, you know, stores that are closing in San Francisco or whatever, because when we don't enforce theft at all, then like people get the word gets out. No theft yeah. isn't. So let's you don't have to it. look all the way to San Francisco. Memphis is worse uh, in the country at 20 crimes per 100,000 residents. Nashville is high at eight. And, and data reflects 8% rise in homicides only halfway through the year here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. Do you have a good relationship with the new chief of police, John Drake? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I, I, and I'm working hard to earn the endorsement um, of the, of the FOP. I have said uh, last week on the Nashville banner and there, um, they, they trotted all the candidates out and said, uh, who's the first person you're going to hire um and everybody's like oh deputy mayor or chief of staff and whatever and i said well i think that's kind of misguided because you know eight years ago the guy that had picked out his whole cabinet and the curtains he didn't even make it to the runoff so i think that's sort of misguided but i will say the one person i will ask to stay on the first day is chief drake um because what he has is the hardest thing to earn he has the public's trust and he has the public's admiration for how he and the police force handled Covenant and how also uh, he, you know, mourned with every family who was lost. He acknowledged that the teaching of the Covenant school, that these children, uh, their great faith was helping bring them through. Um, and, and I and I think families across the city, no matter their background, they look at that and they think I, 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 I the trust that he has of the public, and I'm sure that there are shortcomings of any person, there are shortcomings of me, uh, any leader anywhere. If there's a shortcoming that he has, um, you should staff to that, you know, skill set that maybe if you feel like he's not great at something. 
But in terms of the most critical thing for an urban police chief to build Nashville, to have the best police force in America, to have a police force where people want to come and be a part of it, you first have to have a chief that has the public's trust and he has that. Um, so I so, got five minutes. I got five minutes left. I think oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear okay. you say that. Okay. Um, do you think the Covenant Shooters uh, diary or basket of evidence should be released or, or how do you feel about that? Mm. And with the city council being reduced from 40 to 20, and I know it'll be a while, 2027, yeah. I think you're, if you win the first mayoral term will be almost over, but do you like that? Mm -hmm. And and uh, what kind of relationship do you think you would have with the folks remaining in Metro yeah. Council? Yeah, so uh, the first, the, the my uh, neighbor, um, uh, Matthew Sullivan is the Bible teacher at Covenant. And in my front yard today is not a sign for Alice Rowley there's a sign with the name of all of the victims um, here. Um, and, and I think the question about releasing um, the manifest, I think this is, and there's an incredible amount of grief. I do understand and respect the position of people saying they need to learn from it. And I wanna find a way that we can learn from it or the right people can come and see these materials the same way that people go into the Hoover Institute and look at the archives, the same way that different experts and evaluate what they need to evaluate, take what they need to take. But right now you have families here in that community that are deeply broken. And I don't, uh, you know, I know when I worked for Governor Haslam, there were periods of time where we would shield records for a period of time. And so I, I don't know where that answer is going to come, but I but I think that we do need to let experts go in and see what can we learn, what should we change, what should happen. But I think we also have to recognize the grief that these parents and families are going through and figure out a way to, in, in, in a respectful way, allow experts to evaluate these things um, and I and and I and I don't know if at some point then they can become um, public after so so many years or something. But right now it does feel like, um, and I know people say, Alice, if you come out and supported that, all these people would vote for you. And I and I think of Matthew Sullivan, my neighbor, um, who's the Bible teacher there, and he has led chapel every day, um, even in his grief, because he knew that those kids needed to hear him every day. And I just. Um, Gosh, I, I think we I think we got to find a way to learn what we need to learn uh, to figure out how to not let it happen again, but also to honor the grief of those families um, on the question of the city council being reduced. Um, so I, as an entrepreneur, look at this as an opportunity um, to reset the functioning of our city. If we are going to we, we see the amount of friction that is happening with our land use, zoning, planning, government frequently getting in the way. Let's use this pretty cataclysmic moment of cutting our city council in half to figure out how in the process to what other charter amendments or what other adjustments do we need to make to make our government more customer focused. People's frequent frustration with Nashville city government is instead of solving a problem of here I need a permit, here I need a um, you know zoning inspection, here I needed this, is instead we have 60 different departments that all go like this. Well, that's my budget, that's my thing. There's a lot of turf warfare. So in some ways, this new regulatory environment, just like if I was, you're, you're a podcasting world, but if I was a newspaper, you know, print newspaper 25 years ago, I could live in a world that says I'm going to fight and pretend that internet news is not going to take over, or I'm going to go figure out how to do that really well. And so I sort of feel the same way uh, with, with the new size of the city council. It is 
I could spend all of my energy for the next three years thinking I'm going to get some different result. Or I could sort of say, this is the regulatory environment that we're operating this under. How do I actually use that opportunistically to clean up and make more efficient um, the functioning of our government so that we are thinking first of how we are serving the people who live here and a little bit less about how we're defending our turf in City Hall. Okay. I only got time for a couple more. I wish I had more, but okay. do, you, do you prefer personally small business support for Nashville or the large corporations to come in like In-N-Out Burgers, $1.9 million property tax abatement or Facebook or Ford or the NFL? Mm -hmm. Which Which do you prefer? Yeah, well, uh, well. So I've I've said this quite a bit. Um, the two companies that I've helped grow uh, pretty rapidly never never went to the government to ask uh, for something. I actually think, um, and I did work in economic development, um, and I do appreciate that you may not be able to unilaterally disarm. Meaning, if if there's a market of incentives for what we call large traded clusters, so businesses that could locate anywhere. Um, but I, but I actually believe um, that when government gets in the business of picking the winners and the losers and sort of says, well, in and out gets uh, this, well, how, how come Hardee's down the street that's been there for 15 years didn't? And I think that we start to erode the trust because people start to say, if you know the right person, you get a different answer. Right. And that's where like people get frustrated with the airlines, right? Because if you go to a certain desk, they'll let you check your 51 pound bag with no charge. You go to the other desk, 49 and a half, you're paying. Right. And so when I worked for Governor Haslam, we took the state uh, through a project we did um, uh, with, with, you know, a lot of help with this Pew Center for the States and other, other groups. We took the state from one of the least transparent in our economic development initiatives to the most transparent. So I think that, it, so generally speaking, I don't believe that Nashville, Davidson County actually needs to do much of anything in the way of corporate relocation incentives. Uh, one of the other guys in the race, Alliance Bernstein, chief operating officer, you know, moved here five years ago because we recruited his company. Well, actually, zero tax dollars from Davidson County have gone to his company. And if you if you talk to him, fundamentally, why they moved here from New York was the state tax environment. So if we're picking certain winners, but then at some point we've got to pay the bills of our police and firefighters, then we're going to tax all these guys and not tax these guys. I, I actually think that that is not um, a a good long term strategy. The best long term strategy for building an economy that people want to relocate to is our tax environment, our state tax environment. We are the lowest debt per capita state in the in the country. So if I'm going to sink a half a billion dollars into building something, I want to build it somewhere where I'm not worried about the state's fiscal position because it's hard for me to move that. So that attracts companies here. And then the second thing is the quality of the workforce. And we have to prepare our kids to be ready for those maximum wage jobs coming or we're following the shiny object, we're following the ribbon cutting, and we're missing, this is the job. Kids reading, the streets are safe. I'd say businesses care more about relocating to a city that's safe than like, did I, did I get some kind of dollar figure? So I'm, I, you will not and see- And an educated me. workforce, of course, is always nice. Workforce. And yeah. we talked about yeah. that. So last question, yeah. I'm in overtime, Steve's yelling at me. Um, a poll conducted in May last month on behalf of Tennesseans for student success by mm -hmm. Victory Phones 
showed that Nashvillians prefer a mayoral candidate with a strong position on education. We heard that from you and infrastructure uh, that quality slightly edged positions on social issues as the leading factor in who earned their vote. Do you agree with that poll? And we've discussed education. So what are your plans for infrastructure? And then I got to ask yeah. you how people can yeah. find you. So, it, I mean, so infrastructure, the single biggest issue is obviously traffic and transit. And we are one of the only, we are the only top 25 city market in the country that doesn't have dedicated transit. Uh, we uh, failed spectacularly when we tried to do that in 2018. So, um, so getting dedicated transit funding, putting that to the voters is a definitely a priority because we are leaving tax we, we are we are putting ourselves structurally at a disadvantage to the other 24 larger metros because we can't leverage state or federal funds without without that dedicated transit piece. So I take the position of what is the single most important thing for the mayor to do. That's the single most important thing is to set a priority that we believe that we need to be able to leverage state federal dollars and not pay for it strictly ourselves um, and, and, and to go out and get that done. Um, your other I'm sorry, you had another question in there. I feel like. Uh, well, your your infrastructure plan, basically, the we already yeah. heard education from that poll and social yeah. issues. You, you've 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 hit a couple of those. We won't have time to get into all of them, but I just wanted to know what your infrastructure plan was. And it sounds like uh, you're saying mass transit is one of one of your. Plans. Oh no 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 no. So that is um. So I I think actually when we step back and we look um, and I'm I'm not saying I'm building light rails and digging up and putting tunnels through the downtown. We saw that failed spectacularly when we tried that before. But I do believe that we've got to get, um, as, as we've continued to do, we've got to get things like, like we're still pretty underinvested in things like traffic synchronization. We've got to get, because of our region's growth, we've got to build more last mile options where people are going to continue to come in to the edge of the county. How do we help them park their car there and then start to ride for the last mile or the last 10 miles uh, rapid bus transit or other methods to help reduce our congestion of our Davidson County residents, but also it's recognizing that there's 2 million residents in the region that are going to continue to come into the city and the cost, um, the cost of parking downtown. We've also changed parking allocations. Buildings can be built downtown without the set-asides that they used to. Yeah. So we've got to collect cars As somewhere. we saw with the Taylor Swift concert, it was a complete yes. logistical nightmare. Yeah. So. And we've got, we've got to collect the cars like Bellevue is a good example. We've got a park and ride there. It's right off the interstate. You can collect, be a collector car from the west side of this county. And then you've got to have enough rapid transit, bus bus rapid transit to go in that's reliable, that's safe, that people go, okay, the last 10 miles, I'm going to park my car and ride in. Um, but I don't believe we're, we're, we're not, we're not going to build a light rail to Franklin yeah. That's not okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we are at the end here. Thank you so much for the extra time. I know you're super busy, but uh, tell everyone where they can go to find out you more about you, follow you on your campaign and of course, social media and donate or get involved. Yeah. We'd love to have your support. Um, I think the entire region cares that the city of Nashville is successful. And so wherever you live in the listening area, we could definitely use your support as volunteer um, uh, contributions. And also in Davidson County, your vote uh, is Alice, A-L-I-C-E, Rolly, R-O-L-L-I.com. And election day is coming soon. Yeah, we start early voting July 14th and election day is August 3rd. So it's a Thursday. 
in August. It's real confusing if you are new. <laughs> I also want to remind everyone, if you are new, Tennessee does not register people by political party. This is a completely independent race. Um, and um, and you, um, like many people, you can go to my website. You can be a Republican, an independent, a Democrat. Um, you can be on, on our team and we'd love to have you. Excellent. Okay. Well, we hope to have you back sometime and hopefully with good news. Yeah, it sounds good. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck. Harvey Durham Health Insurance Agency is the trusted independent health insurance agency that you can depend on for all your health insurance coverage needs. He's great because he doesn't look at health insurance as sales. He looks at it as helping people and doing the best he can to solve your current long-term care, disability, and Medicare supplement needs, even pets. I know. I'm a client, and so is my lab, Caroline. Over 30 years of insurance experience behind every policy. Give Harvey a call at 731 727 9242 or email him at Harvey Durham at HarveyDurham.com and tell him Steve and Steve at Mill Creek View sent you. Hi, I'm Gabrielle Hansen, Alderman at Large in Franklin, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Mill Creek View podcast. I don't understand. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what do you think of our guest, Republican candidate for Nashville Mayor Alice Rowley? Well, she is a very informed individual, I must say that, and she has a lot of experience. Uh, I know you guys spent a lot of time on the education side of things, and she understands that, and uh, mayors can get involved with, I think, the educational thing, but... Um, I didn't know that you guys, they're, they're having problems there in Nashville, much like a lot of other cities. It, it, it's, what is it, Steve? Is it just that cities attract the, the, the most liberal element of the whole area and they start making, like we were talking um, on another show that we did earlier today, um, a lot of career politicians never owned a job. They've never owned a business and they don't understand how money works. And it seems to me that a lot of these big, big cities are run by career career um, politicians who really don't understand how money works and how... No, no, you're exactly right. That's what Detroit was. You know, that was Lyndon Johnson's experiment with uh, a lot of social money that uh, ended up bankrupting the autos and moving them south where there weren't union jobs because a lot of that federal funds ends up in the union job pockets and it does not help the people. It doesn't help the infrastructure. It doesn't help the city grow. Just like I used to always say when I moved to Seattle, that town was made for horse and buggy. You can't get off one bridge and get downtown without going through five lanes of very fast, very not paying attention traffic, including big rigs. Uh, the infrastructure just wasn't there because the money was used on other things like, mm, I don't know, greasing politicians and yes. uh, ambassadors to Luxembourg or whatever the case may be. But it is summertime and kids are out of school, but I have a history lesson for everybody. Um and Alice Rowley, by the way, does seem very qualified, so she probably would make a good uh, good mayor, but I think it's an uphill battle because it's a very liberal town, as we just described. 
Uh, so quick question for you, Steve, producer Steve. We are in the middle of June, mm-hmm. Pride Month. Pride Month. There's my pride flag behind me every episode, every month. You can see it on Rumble. It's red, anyway, white, and blue. Red, white, and blue. So this new holiday, Juneteenth, is now upon us. Uh, banks were closed yesterday. So it's a real thing now. Uh, no mail. Uh, what is it? Do you know? I heard that it was something about the last liberated slave in Texas. But I, I to be honest, Steve, it's a made-up historical event thing that i mean i'm not saying it's a historical event that was made out i'm just saying how many more holidays do we need steve why don't why don't we have uh well all holidays are made up anglo-american holidays Just like all words are made up so we can't really go with that one but i'll tell you what the interweb says deriving its name from combining june and 19th it is celebrated on the anniversary of the order by Major General Gordon Granger proclaiming freedom for enslaved people in Texas on June 19th, 1865. So I'll plan a vacation next year since it's permanent. But do you know who General Granger was? No, I do not. A Republican career U.S. Army officer and a Union general during the American Civil War. Okay, silly question now. Do you know who Abraham Lincoln was? Yes. Okay, well, Lincoln led the Union through the American Civil War to defend the nation as a constitutional union and succeeded in abolishing slavery on September 22nd, 1862. Did you hear what I said a second ago? 1865. (laughs) Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, 1862, three years before Granger in Texas, the United States of Army freed slaves. The Kansas-Nebraska Act provoked violent opposition in Illinois and the other states of the Old Northwest. It gave rise to the Republican Party while speeding the Whig Party on its way to disintegration. Along with many thousands of other homeless Whigs, Lincoln soon became a Republican, 1856. So Juneteenth is stupid. The day a Republican president emancipated proclamation finally reached Texas. February 12th, Lincoln's birthday should be good enough. We used to celebrate that when I was a kid. Then it became a President's Day to lump them all together. Some are better than others, as you'll see in a minute. Another good president that has been purloined. That's a fun word, purloined. Purloined. Not not fun to have it done to you, but Eisenhower. Not to be with tenderloin. No, not at all. But Eisenhower, Republican, saved Taiwan nearly 60 years after his presidency. Uh, A friend of mine, Tom Lorenzen. Hi, Tom from California was instrumental in creating his DC memorial and Taiwan pledged a million dollars towards its creation. That's a lot of money for a monument. Why would they do that? When Eisenhower took office in January, 1953, the Korean war was drawing to a close. That meant new uncertainty for Taiwan. Originally then president Harry Truman, Democrat, had declared a military non-intervention policy for Taiwan, effectively signaling that Should the newly formed People's Republic of China launch a full-scale invasion, the United States would not interfere. That policy changed with the advent of the Korean War, which brought the U.S. and the PRC into conflict. Truman deployed the U.S. 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Straits to signal new U.S. opposition to a PRC military strike against the island. Eisenhower, then the Army Chief of Staff, people don't remember that, and the next U.S. President after Truman, Eisenhower made clear for the first time that the United States was formally committed to defending Taiwan from armed attack. The Mutual Defense Treaty, it was called, between the United States of America and the Republic of China was signed on December 2, 1954. 
No wonder Taiwan still likes Ike and wrote a million dollar check for his uh, monument. In 1947, Truman had even offered to step aside and allow Ike to run atop the Democratic ticket in 1948 with Truman running as his vice president. The question I have is, will they like Biden? Clip number one, please. On Taiwan, I reiterated the longstanding US one China policy. Uh, that policy has not changed. It's guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, three joint communiques, the six assurances. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either. Did you hear that? That was Senator Blinken, I'm sorry, Secretary Blinken. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo. No, they won't like Joe much soon. The Biden doctrine is you're on your own. Keep your semiconductors and good luck. One for history buffs that I bet you didn't know. 1975, President Ford was left to manage the difficult ending of the Vietnam War. President Ford went to Congress for a relief package to allow American personnel and our allies to evacuate. However, there was a guy in the Senate who opposed any such support. The result was the embarrassing and hurried evacuation from the roof of the American embassy in Saigon. You ever see those pictures on the news? This senator revealed in the embarrassment and reveled in the embarrassment and did everything he could to leverage it politically against Ford. Despite the efforts of the, this U.S. senator, President Ford managed to rescue 1,500 South Vietnamese allies prior to the country's fall. Had President Ford not acted quickly, these people would have been targeted and slaughtered for their support for America. When they arrived in America, President Ford asked Congress for a package to assist these refugees to integrate into American society. That same troublesome senator torpedoed any support for these shell-shocked anti-communist Americans and our helpers, the refugees. Instead, President Ford had to recruit Christian organizations to offer assistance on a voluntary basis. As he did so, the senator belittled those efforts. What kind of person would oppose President Ford's tireless work to do the right and humanitarian thing? Who would want to play politics with the well-being of innocent people who stood by America in the traumatic Vietnam War? That senator was Joe Biden. I just quoted from the book, When the Center Held by Donald Rumsfeld in 2018. For the next part, consider what's being done to our kids' dopamine levels on a daily basis with phones and video games and TV, and then listen to this, clip number two. Various enemies of freedom are pushing us toward a real-life, brave new world, and you say that it's awaiting us just around the corner. First of all, can you detail for us what life in this brave new world which you fear so much, what life might be like? Well, to start with, I think this kind of the dictatorship of the future, I think will be very unlike uh, the dictatorships which we've been familiar with in the immediate past. I mean, take another book prophesying the future, uh, which was a very remarkable book, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, this book was written at the height of the Stalinist regime and just after the Hitler regime. And he, there he foresaw a dictatorship using entirely the methods of terror, the methods of physical violence. Now, I, I think what, what is going to happen in the future is the dictators will find, as the old saying goes, that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That if you want to preserve your power indefinitely, 
you have to get the consent of the ruled. And this they will do, partly by drugs, as I foresaw in, uh, in Brave New World, partly by these uh, new techniques of, uh, uh, of propaganda. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even. And so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime, but they will be happy in situations where they oughtn't to be happy. But let me ask you this. You're talking about a world that could take place within the confines of a totalitarian state. Hmm. Let's become more immediate, more urgent about it. We believe, anyway, that we live in democracy here in the United States. Do you believe that this brave new world that you talk about uh, could, let's say, in the next quarter century, the next century, could come here to our shores? I think it could. I mean, I, I, that's why I feel it's so extremely important here and now to start thinking about these problems, not to let ourselves be taken by surprise by the and new advances in technology. I mean, the, for example, in, in regard to the use of the, of the drugs, we know there's enough evidence now uh, for us to be able, on the basis of this evidence, and using a certain amount of creative imagination, to foresee the kind of uses which could be made in a, uh, by people of bad will with these things, uh, and to attempt to, to forestall this. And in the same way, I think, with these other methods of uh, propaganda, we can foresee and we can do a good deal to forestall. I mean, after all, um, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I think people need to read my book, Breaking the Deception Code. <laughs> they do. But they should have a long time ago. That was 1958. I know. Oh, I Aldous know. Huxley, uh, talking to Mike Wallace, predicted a form of dictatorship that rely would rely not on force, but propaganda and addiction. That's not bad enough to carry around voluntary tracking devices on ourselves. What would a totalitarian, totalitarian government do with that information? Maybe what clip number three warns against? Gates says he had one of his companies putting up 61,000 uh, low altitude satellites to do Earth surveillance. He says that his company alone will be able to watch every square inch of the Earth at 24 hours a day. So, you know, the capacity of people to escape that kind of surveillance and to um, and to live, you know, free lives is going to be the, the power. Is what we're, we're creating is this kind of turnkey totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. We're the next totalitarian regime that steps up and really wants to clamp things down. They're going to have all of these mechanisms in place like no regime has had it in human history. Yep. Robert Kennedy Jr. said one of Bill Gates's companies has 61,000 satellites that will be able to watch every square inch of this earth. You guys might not see it, but they're trying to turn earth into a prison planet. Next story. Most black Americans believe U.S. racism will get worse in their lifetime. A poll by Jared Gans, 61723thehill.com. Most black Americans believe racism in the United States will get worse during their lifetime, according to a new poll, a Washington Post Ipso poll 
released Friday showed that 51% of Black respondents said they expect racism will get worse, while 37% said that they expect it will stay about the same. Only 11% said that it will get better. This was mostly consistent across age groups of Black respondents. Those 50 to 64 were the most likely to say they expected racism to get worse, with 57% saying so, while those 30 to 39 were the least likely, with 43% saying so. Let's hope so. But no more than 13% of any age group said they expected racism to get better. Next story. Ex-Anheuser-Busch exec reveals how lefty investment firms pressure companies to go woke. Woke governance that has sent profits spiraling at companies like Anheuser-Busch and Target often begins with lefty investment firms pressuring them to push products their way, an ex-top Anheuser-Busch exec said. During an appearance on Fox News' Jesse Waters' primetime, Anson Frederick said behind the scenes, politicking from firms like New York-based BlackRock and Pennsylvania-based Vanguard spur many of the controversial decisions, sparking nationwide boycotts from longtime most conservative customers, such as the ill-fated Bud Light promotion with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. He said BlackRock, Vanguard, and other firms, State Street, manage about $20 trillion in capital and use their clout to promote agenda politics being pushed on them by progressive lawmakers overseeing government pension funds that the companies profit from. Clip number four, please. Actually work. These guys are telling the truth. Jesse, thanks for having me this morning. I mean, here's how it works. It's pretty simple. You just have to follow the money. If you take a look at BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, they manage $20 trillion worth of capital. But it's not their own money. This is the money of everyday citizens, firefighters, police officers, doctors who generally have their money either via 401ks or in a lot of cases, large pension funds. Large pension funds like the state of California, which manages the largest pension fund in the U.S., and the state of New York, and then European, European pension funds as well. And a lot of the politicians in those states, in California, for example, they recently have mandated those large pension funds that they divest from things like fossil fuels and oil and gas. And then when, when Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, was there, did the same thing. But they also tell BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, if they're going to manage their money, they have to commit to things like ESG, diversity, equity, inclusion, and adopt firm-wide commitments that they therefore then force onto all the major companies in corporate America. The blind leading the blind, Steve. <laughs> follow the money. Always follow the money, even in your pension. That's it for today. I'm under strict guidelines to keep it to four stories. Sorry. Tune in tomorrow for more on what's on my mind and stay tuned for my thought of the day. If you have a beloved horse that you love like a family member and it's on its last legs, you need to call Edward at Tennessee Horse Cremation. He's got the only custom trailer around and never has to drag a horse. He's compassionate and will help make a difficult situation a little bit easier. Call and ask questions anytime. He's available seven days a week. 931-300-2333. Serving Tennessee as well as portions of Kentucky, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. TN horsecremation.com. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes. And now the CEO special on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button and follow us where I interview the best businesses doing good business. While you're there, leave a comment. I'll read it on air. And thanks for doing it. And a new Florida, Mill Creek View, Florida, out this week. This process 
of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will seldom fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Alexander Hamilton, American politician and founding father of the United States, couldn't be president, wasn't born here. The most important office and the one which all of us can and should fill is that of private citizen. Louis Brandeis, American lawyer and associate justice of the Supreme Court from 1916 to 1939. Republican before 1912, Democrat after 1912. Oops. Brandeis defined modern notions of the individual right to privacy in a path-breaking article he in the Harvard Law Review of December 15, 1890 on the right to privacy when he was on the right team. The ballot is stronger than the bullet. Abraham Lincoln, former U.S. president, you want to celebrate someone for Juneteenth? There's your guy. Republican Party founder, by the way. The ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of all. John F. Kennedy, former U.S. president. We do not have the government by the majority. We have government by the majority who participate. Thomas Jefferson, former U.S. president and founding father of the U.S., a re record-breaking 3,045,401 Tennesseans or over 68% of active and inactive registered voters cast ballots in person during early voting and on election day or absentee by mail in the November 3rd presidential election. Voter turnout and participation handily beat the previous record set during the 2008 presidential election when 2,618,000 cast their ballots. Don't let them fool you that voters are apathetic and make you stay home stay engaged, and you can actually fix things. That's it for this episode. Really hoped you liked it. Thank you, Alice Rowley, and good luck. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.